Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We need to get caught up on the finance of the moment. There's no one better to do that with than Andrew Sheets with Morgan Stanley and their chief cross-asset asset strategist. Andrew, good morning to you. The milieu here is a boom American economy. How does your view change on allocation given the strength of the American locomotive? Well, I think that that's a great place to start. Uh, the growth backdrop appears incredibly strong. Our economists at Morgan Stanley uh, have continued to hold an above consensus view on, on both U.S. and global growth. So we're certainly in that strong growth camp. But I also think we have to acknowledge that this unusually fast recovery could mean we also have an unusually fast cycle, an unusually short cycle. And thus, it's time for investors to start moving out of many of the strategies, many of the sectors that often work in that early cycle right after a recession period into things that tend to work better when conditions get a little bit more mid-cycle, when that recovery is a little bit more mature. And so those are the rotations that we're starting to make, um, switching out of small caps into large caps moving into more quality stocks. I, I think that's going to be an important theme as, yes, growth is very strong, but I think we could be facing a cycle that looks much hotter and, and much faster than those that we're used to. Andrew, I want you to build on that because I think it's lost on some people still. You've been pushing this story now for the best part of a couple of months, I think. The shorter, hotter cycle. What are the signposts you're using right now to suggest that this cycle will be shorter, it will be hotter? Yeah, great. So I, I think it's it's fascinating because it's really kind of three overlapping cycles. There's economic conditions, there are business confidence conditions, and then there are market conditions. And if we think about the, the cycle, that kind of cyclical movement in, in very simple terms, it's about going from the low depressed levels to high elevated levels. And for the economy, it's about how quickly do you go back above trended inflation? How quickly are you below average in unemployment? Well, those things, I think, will happen unusually fast. That's that's the view of Ellen Zentner, our chief U.S. economist. For businesses, it's about moving from caution to aggression. It's about high corporate confidence coming back. Well, you know, you see this in, in business confidence surveys, that those are rapidly improving, and we think they'll continue to improve. And, and on markets, you're seeing it in valuations, where, you know, market valuations have, have already returned to kind of cyclical peaks in many cases, unusually fast. So I think those are just some of the signposts that we're watching, but I think all of that is consistent with a, a progression that's happening much faster than what investors have been used to over the last 30 years. Andrew, have equities, have risk assets already priced in the peak of this hotter and shorter cycle? I think in some cases they, they have. Uh, I think in, in some, if you look at you know what we're forecasting for the S&P 500, you know, my colleague Mike Wilson has a 3,900 target for the end of this year. So we're, we're above that. I think it's it's fair to say we think U.S. equities have priced in a lot of good news. Um, credit spreads are, are kind of near cyclical tights, um, near, near our forecasts again for the end of the year. So again, a market that we think is priced in a lot. And on the interest rate front, you know, we think that, you know, inflation break-evens have generally hit our team's targets. We, we had been more optimistic that those break-evens would move higher. And, and we now think that that, is, that needs to pause. 
cause. So there are some key movements there. I would say one market that we think has not priced in, um, you know, where there is still risk premium, is an EM local debt. Uh, if one at FX hedges it, that's a market we've recently upgraded on the emerging market side. And that's one area where I still think there's some value. Andrew Sheeter, Morgan Stanley with us this morning as we await comments. Opening remarks from the President of the United States at a global climate change summit. The Vice President, Kamala Harris, speaking right now. Andrew, let me just turn to the domestic story in America. You're looking at peak growth in the United States. Does that mean one thing for the equity market and something else for the bond market? Do those two asset classes read into that differently? Well, I, I think there's potentially because I, I do think the bond market is directly linked or will be heavily influenced by what the Federal Reserve does, where I think the equity market will be influenced by both the Fed, but also the progression of earnings and, and a number of other factors. And, you know, I think the key issue on the equity side, you know, this was a, a component of, of my colleague Mike Wilson's downgrade of the small cap market is, you know, just concern that the margin picture is going to start to get more complicated, that um, you have costs that are rising in the supply chain, and those costs um, are not going to be equally easy to pass on to end, uh, end customers, and we think it will be harder for some of those kind of smaller, lower quality companies to do so. So now I think of the bond market side, you've seen a bond market that's already pricing in a, a near-term path that we think is more hawkish than what yep. the Fed would like to do. And, and so that's a somewhat different picture. Andrew Sheets there of Morgan Stanley. How do you approach this market? Tony Dwyer joins us now. Canaccord Genuity Chief Market Strategist. Tony, we've stalled, but you say the power is still on. What do you mean by that? So when you're when you think about an air show, you know, just about everybody's gone to an air show and they see a plane screaming across the runway horizontally and all of a sudden it pulls up and it goes straight up and the power's on, the engines are cooking and all of a sudden it gets up to a certain part and it just stops going up no matter how much power is added to it. You just lose lift. And that's kind of our that's our call for and it's our analogy for what could happen in the market. We know that the fundamental backdrop is very positive. You know how optimistic I have been and continue to be on the macro backdrop of excess liquidity fueling a, a, a strong global recovery. That's not going to change. But that's also so well known. The markets are so overbought enthusiasm is so high that I think we're approaching that stall speed for a little while. Tony, I want to give you a major shout out. You've had the courage to be in the market. I put Gina Martin Adams of Bloomberg in that camp. There's others as well. David Costin and Goldman's been quite good. But Tony, you link it right into economics. Aren't we as far from recession as we've ever been? Well, I, I think, it, again, Tom, we, we always try to paint each environment as unique. And of course, the reason you go into a recession is unique and it creates a credit crisis and it creates a Fed that is extraordinarily accommodative. So where we are economically is sort of where we were in 2004 and 2010 coming out of those kind of never before seen recessions where you get this economic lift that creates uncertainty in the interest rate environment, what the Fed's going to do. Are, are they going to um, do what Canada did yesterday and pull back a little bit on quantitative easing? So this isn't unique. Things are good. We're at the beginning of an economic and market cycle. But in that process, 
you can have periods of a stall. And that that's all we're talking about here is not an economic catastrophe by any stretch, just a little bit of a market pause. The stall speed is very much having to do with markets, not economic data, which has actually come out better right. than expected, notwithstanding perhaps the claims uh, number that comes out in about 90 minutes time. Uh, that's the expectation anyway. What are you looking for? What are markets looking for to resume that lift, that turbocharged uh, climb into the sky, to use your analogy terribly, um, in, in order to uh, go back into the market? I really think, Lisa, you, you need to reset expectations. The next leg higher, I think, has to come from a place where people look around and say, I'm not invested enough. I think most of the data suggests um, that everybody's overly invested. And there's been some deterioration under in the small cap world and in the NASDAQ stocks. So, uh, again, think about it this way. About six weeks ago, we, we downgraded the financials, which we'd been very positive on. You know, our banks and tanks call got a lot of attention. But we downgraded the financials because we thought interest rates had seen a peak. And people were saying, how could you think that rates are going to come down on the long end with inflation expectations picking up and almost a million jobs being created? But that's what happened. Sometimes those fundamental factors are discounted in the market and to create the next leg higher, which I think will happen in rates, which I think will happen in stocks. You just need that pause that refreshes, that resets expectations to a more normal level. Tony, always great to get your perspective. You always drain the drama. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Generative Chief Market Strategist. It is welcome, sir. Right now, on that point of clarity, let us migrate to James Athey, Aberdeen Standards Senior Investment Manager. And what's so important here, James, is you write it up as well on the poor communication. Who is poorly communicating around Christine Lagarde? Uh, hi, morning, Tom. Can I give you a virtual high five first? Because uh, I kind of agree on the mumbo jumbo point, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think central bank communication in general and ECB communication specifically has become really a parody because it's apparent, you know, the theory behind this is that it's transparent uh, communication of one's reaction function so that markets can smooth the transition between policy changes. And that's not what we get here at all. I mean, the focus, you know, John, you're talking about the pace of purchases. We have to argue over the semantics of what significantly means. You we don't do, think yeah. 10% is significant. Maybe the ECB does. But what purpose is this really serving? I just think now it creates more distortions and creates bigger problems than it solves in, in any way, shape or form. So who's communicating poorly? Well, the institution. I don't think Madame Lagarde has necessarily settled down as quickly as, as would have been hoped. She's had several communication missteps. But more importantly, and again, Tom, you've made this point brilliantly already, this is, this is sort of institutional institutional within the ECB because of the very nature of, uh, you know, the people round the table and the fact that they come from sovereign nations, which are, are not sort of formally bound together in the same way that the states of, of the US are. So you have different people with different domestic economic situations to deal with uh, and different bond markets, more importantly, to, re to uh, report back to. And of course, that means that they have a very different view of what the appropriate path of policy is. James, you're making a couple of points there, and they're all important ones. I think that the ECB has a credibility issue around the semantics right now, don't think it matters so much. At a time of stress, you need real credibility. And if they can't define what significantly front-loading 
actually is and what it means. And if it is 10% above the average of the first quarter, then the next time they come out and there's real stress on, say, the periphery, and they say, we'll front load. And this market looks at that and says, well, we've heard this before, and front loading means X, Y, Z. Then you've got a problem. So the credibility issue right now might not be a problem, but it could be in the near term. You also brought up the ECB president, Christine Lagarde. I've spoken to so many people on background, off the record, who have got an opinion on this, but don't want to talk about it on the record. James, so let's talk about it on the record right now. Why is she finding it so difficult to communicate with this market, A? And why is she finding it so difficult to get the governing council to come along with her and not talk behind the scenes and not make leaks and not do all these kind of things? What is she struggling with specifically? So I think the first problem from the ECB's perspective is that they're so far, you know, monetary policy and, and the, the, the levers that they're pulling, the policies that they're implementing are just so far from monetary policy, really. It's untrue. You know, this has become very much managing financial markets first and foremost. The purported transmission from actions into inflation outcomes or growth outcomes has long since been forgotten. There's not even a pretense that this is a traditional transmission of economic uh, policy from uh, you know, central bankers' words to uh, the man in the street's actions. Nobody is even pretending that's what's going on anymore. So the policy toolkit has become very big, very unwieldy. The problem being dealt with is huge because trying to keep financial markets under wraps when the economy is structurally weak, but then goes through the sort of cyclical weakness that we all experience in, in Q1 to Q2 of last year, of course, incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I think when you get into that technical toolkit, the fact that, that Madame Lagarde's background is not, um, you know, from a sort of theoretical economics perspective, is not a career central banker, obviously that means that she has to come up the learning curve a little. And, and obviously she's doing that and she, I think she's getting better through time. Um, but in trying to say nothing, to not give the market anything to go on, which I think is what she aims to do in most press conferences, she quite often confuses more than she clarifies. And we've seen this this pattern of the chief economist, Philip Lane, issuing these, um, these blog posts in the day after the meeting, I think, to try and fine tune and clarify some of that message. Do you think we need a little bit more structure in the communication, James? What is it that we need? What we have seen from the Federal Reserve is a shift in the reaction function, a new framework. And whether you think that's the right or wrong thing, what it has done is it's forced pretty much every single member of the FOMC right now to sing from the same hymn sheet. You don't get that in Europe. We didn't get that in Draghi's tenure either. Do we need more structure? You know, my honest answer to this, John, is we need less, not more. I think, Interesting. You know, Go, go back 40 years and, and there was no announcement, there was no statement, there was nothing, there was a, a, few, a few men in a smoky room and then you had to look at money markets to work out what decision had been made, if any, at all. Now, that's one extreme. I think we're way at the other end of the spectrum. I think ultimately central bankers need to understand that they cannot manage every short-term gyration of financial markets and to the extent that they do they are creating as many problems for themselves when they try and exit policy as they're solving as they implement policy and i think this is one of the things we're about to experience here this is something that Richard Koo wrote about many years ago and has been very consistent on, and he's been very accurate in understanding and describing the world post post the GFC, the QE trap. And this, this is the point that is very easy to ratchet up the amount of policy that's implemented to deal with every, uh, every whips or every decline yeah. in economic activity. But actually, it's much more difficult to then try and deal with financial markets overreacting, overextrapolating when you come to exit the policy. And I think central banks 
possibly, and possibly this includes the ECB, certainly the Hawks, they're just trying not to dig themselves into a deeper hole just yet, not until they absolutely have to. James, as an investor, what could happen in today's press conference that could actually make you change the way you invest or what you decide to buy? I mean, yeah, on a tactical time horizon, Lisa, obviously there can be portfolio changes as a result of things that you hear. I wouldn't expect that to be the case today. What I might expect is that some prices might change that become more attractive to change investments. Um, I think, you know, broadly speaking, bond yields are under pressure everywhere. I think the next phase of the sort of bond market um, economic cycle, bond market transition, if you like, is for the rest of the world, the non-US, non-China world, to play some economic catch-up. And I think that probably sees yields outside of the US underperforming relative to the the US. I think when you see yields rising, I don't think that's a great place for Italy to be, especially if there's any whiff of taper talk. And so if we, we were to see a, a very successful dovish message from, from Madame Lagarde and we see Italian yields fall and spreads tighten, that might be something I would look to lean into. Based on the fact that not a lot has changed from the headlines we've seen just now at 12.45, I think, you know, Madame Lagarde, again, is going to hope that this this presser is a bit of a snooze fest. But to your point, John, she's going to get she's going to get asked a lot of questions about this. Someone someone got in trouble for saying that once upon a time, James. James, James, it's going to be, I'm on the edge of my seat. I mean, this, I'm taking notes and it's going to be, you know, we'll have it on radio. James can come back tomorrow, the day after. We'll do it on a weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to be honest with you. This is the bit of the job that I probably enjoy the least. Pouring over. Selling it, James. You're selling it, James. Keep it up. (laughs) You're not alone, James. You're not alone, though. James Athic, Aberdeen Standard Investment Senior Investment Manager. I say technical and Tom, you're right. You call it boring. James Athic does too. And for many people, it might be. We'll see. Francis Donald, you are expert at this. Thank you for joining from Manulife this morning. And I want to really dovetail George Saravellis' note early this morning. Saravellis is in foreign exchange. He's looking at strong Canadian dollar. Francis, you live and breathe this with Manulife of Montreal. So we've got a wonderful nexus here of George Saravellis and Francis Donald on the Canadian-U.S. difference. And the answer, Francis, according to George, is Canada's creating jobs and Christian Friedland and Trudeau have a nation getting back to real labor excellence faster than America. How long is it going to take for America to stop replacing restaurant jobs and get back to actual true job formation? There's about six questions in that, Tom. I tried. I was going for seven. I failed. Uh, Let's start with what we can learn from Canada. Canada is telling us a couple really important stories. One is that relative fiscal policy is a key global market driver. That's true between Canada and the U.S., but also the U.S. and Europe. The second is that labor market healing is going to be a key component to our 2021 and 2022 forecasts. And places like Canada and Europe did not experience the same drop in labor force participation rates. What matters for the United States now, for me, the most important known unknown is how fast labor supply comes back to America. Because that's the key to wages, that's the key to unlocking 2022 and 2023 growth. Now, last but not least, when we look at these two economies, we do see an important story, which is the U.S. really Q1 story. I love that. 
a lot of very good news priced into the U.S. story. I talk about re peak reopening in the U.S., right. peak reflation in the U.S. Where are expectations really low? Where are the hawkish up surprises? Where are the upside surprises <clears throat> outside the U.S. in places like Europe and Canada? My view is the next big move higher in U.S. Treasury yields is not right. going to be U.S. driven. It's going to be globally driven, probably Europe. Okay, but Francis, let's go all Marshallian here, folks. This is Alfred Marshall, supply and demand. You know, the little XEX thing that Francis is expert at. Is this about labor supply coming on, or is it about labor demand in America? It's going to be both. And this is one of the biggest challenges is that we have this whole list of missing inputs into our outlook. And they range from things like what are corporate taxes going to be? What does the infrastructure plan look like? What about the double mutant variant? Apparently, we have to incorporate this now into our outlook. We do not know how fast labor is going to come back, demand or supply, because we've never lived this before. So you hear high conviction economists and strategists who say we're fully healed, we're back to full-time employment or full employment by 2022. We just don't know. We don't have the example. Yeah. And critically on top of this, the Federal Reserve has told us they're not just looking for full employment by our traditional metrics, but a broad-based and inclusive employment goal. So even though we're still running, we're trying to figure out what we're doing, the goalposts are also moving at the same time. It makes for a complicated forecast. And I really think we need to be thinking about wide confidence intervals as we go through the next few months. Yeah, John, I like that word complicated and that it's a nation moving in fits and starts. It's a complicated issue for the airlines too. And talking of fits and starts, domestically, things have really picked up in America for travel. Internationally, not the story. So here's an airline with a domestic tilt. Southwest coming out and saying they're hopeful to achieve break-even by June. The first quarter adjusted loss coming in at around about 172. The estimated loss, 185. 172, the number, the estimate, 185. Hopeful to achieve break-even by June. Lisa, here's an airline with a domestic till. A little bit later this morning, I believe we get an American Airlines earnings as well. There's an airline with an international till. Yeah, and when you look at the overall picture, IATA, the International Association for Airlines, came out yesterday and actually said that the net loss would be substantially bigger, $10 billion bigger this year than they had previously expected, John, because of the variants, because of the prolonged nature of this pandemic, which just isn't exactly going away. I want to use that term that Tom used, fits and starts. Francis, this will come in waves. The reopening won't happen all at once. What does that mean for you just as a market participant as well? Well, the complicated element of this is when you're an economist sitting in an investment team, you have to say what's going to happen to the economy and then importantly, how much of that is already priced. A lot of good news in this price right now. So when I hear headlines like IATA saying, actually, we're going to be a little bit less than expected, this is what worries me. The scope for downside surprises in the United States is bigger. But more problematically, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, I'm very bullish the economy because I got on a flight to Florida and it was packed. The question for you is, is it still going to be packed in 2022 and 2023? You're going to notice a lot of economists are talking now about boom busts, the short cycle. A lot of forecasts are showing a sizable drop in growth for 2023. Now, that might seem very far off, but that's your fiscal impulse coming off. So fits and starts over the next three to six months, absolutely, we're going to have to trade those. It's going to be a very tactical, range-bound market. But where my eye is, is the strategic fits and starts, which is do we see in the United States a pull forward of demand that's very aggressive for one to two years? And then are we facing a little bit more of a problem in the back half of these five-year forecast periods? So you wear two hats. So let me just address that question a little bit more specifically. When you say the scope for downside surprise, more scope for downside surprises in America, as an economist or as a market participant? Oh, as 
both. The problem, however, is that we're looking at a market, and even though I can say we've seen peak reflation, peak reopening in the United States, I cannot be short equities in this market. I absolutely you know, don't want to be long bonds, particularly after this move, even if there's a little bit more upside. Rates are still incredibly low. If you want to make your return profile, you have to be allocating to equities, particularly with momentum still in your favor and the low rate environment. So now is the time with your sector rotations to be adding internationally, to be focusing on country risk and country plays. That's the way we're going to make money in the next six months, as opposed to trying to make these calls on broad risk or headline SPX. Meanwhile, Francis, this is Earth Day, and I'm wondering how much you're paying attention to some of these proposals from an investment perspective, especially as President Biden puts money behind it. Absolutely every single day. I'm often asked, what's the biggest delta on your forecast, biggest change on your forecast, the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration? It's actually green spending. Now, importantly, when we talk about fiscal spending, people usually say this amount, billions of dollars and trillions of dollars equals this amount of growth. But how it's spent is what determines the fiscal multipliers. Green spending is going to have a longer horizon with a different fiscal multiplier. The other component of that that's really critical is we watch green bond issuance as another big component of future asset allocation. A lot of thirst for that. So incorporating ESG investing, looking at green spending, key component of the economic outlook, but also the investment pro, uh, portfolio construction. Francis, I want to dovetail this idea of a green initiative with where we began this conversation, and that is jobs and wages. And we have uh, Biden coming out and saying that this will actually generate well-paying jobs. But you've got union groups pushing back and saying that solar and wind uh, companies have been really opposed unionization and opposed efforts to try to bring wages up in that way. What's the truth? Uh, the complicated element of this is all forms of infrastructure spending, from green to highways. The IMF has plenty of work on this. They hit the economy with a long lag. So you can announce these sorts of initiatives, but we don't see them traditionally from anywhere from three to eight years. So finding that truth and what happens in reality is not going to happen next year. The market's going to have to be patient on seeing that. And this is why I say heading into end 2022, 2023, there's going to be a pothole in the economy. I think the market is starting to sniff that out. Knowing what you own is so difficult right now, Francis. We hear that term greenwashing. BlackRock put out a transition ETF recently, huge demand for it, loads of inflows, as you might expect. Then you go through the top holdings of this thing, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook. Now, maybe they are the leading companies making a transition in the United States of America. Maybe that's the right way to benchmark this ETF. But for the people who are allocating capital to some of these stories, Francis, do you think they really know what they own right now? Hmm, well, my focus on this is actually moving away from company-specific risk, also because I'm a macro strategist, so it's not my area to the same extent, but focusing on country risk on this component and the ESG country screens that are coming through. Sitting up here in Canada is Tom and Vail to everybody. Of course, we're talking about having to do early and cheaper green transitions or fearing access to global capital markets. And I think countries as a whole are going to be accelerating green spending in order to avoid losing capital flows. And that's the component of the macro story that has to integrate the green infrastructure component or you're going to get the trade wrong. Francis, really, really interesting final point. Great to catch up. As always, Francis Donald of Man Your Life. Always great to have Francis with us, Lisa. Often putting Tom in his place as well. <laughs> yeah. The very sure. beginning of every single conversation. There are about six questions in there. You want to throw I a mean, seventh there in is, there? there? I love it. six questions we in do, there. We do panels together, and she just crushes me on stage. I have no She's doubt fearless. about that, Tom.
There's the headline, Tom, connected to the story out of India. Singapore to bar visitors yeah. from India on the deteriorating situation, which is just getting worse and worse. Just a matter of time until we see that from other geographies. We've seen this with the Philippines, with Brazil as well. We're going to have news on Goldman Sachs here in a moment. Stay with us, Global Wall Street. Right now, Jennifer Nuzzo with us, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And all of a sudden, our international health security is important. Jennifer Nuzzo, how far are we from a humanitarian crisis in India? Oh, I mean, we're on the brink. The stories that really uh, worry me the most is hearing about shortages of medical oxygen. I mean, to think that, you know, you can save people's lives by supplementing their oxygen and they just don't have it. It's oxygen, something that's easy to make. That is really, I think, a, a, a severe tragedy. How close are we to shifting to, say, 1947 and the starvation of Europe, the Netherlands, post-World War II Europe? How close are we to where there will be a call for international developed nation and American responsibility to assist India? Oh, we are there. If the call hasn't already been sounded, um, let's sound it now, because there is clearly a deep, deep struggle there and they need help. And, you know, the United States is not going to be uh, back to normal, um, safe, fully safe until we help countries end um, the, these very uh, concerning surges of these cases. Based on the surges that we have seen, how much has the end of the pandemic been pushed out? Well, I mean, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, we still have parts of the globe that haven't gone through this yet. And you, you don't want any country to go through this where you see a massive surge of cases. But any country that has not yet had a surge of cases and is not actively vaccinating its population remains at risk to exactly this scenario. I think earlier there were uh, countries that maybe breathed a sigh of relief that somehow assumed that they escaped the worst of this pandemic. But we're seeing um, quite clearly that that's very much not the case, that many parts of the world still remain deeply at risk. So I worry about these headlines continuing for a year or more unless uh, international partners get together and help share some of the vaccines that are there. We need to absolutely make more vaccines. There's clearly a shortage of medical supplies that needs to be addressed. So a lot of work that the globe can do to help countries and to, you know, try to lessen some of these hideous tolls that the pandemic's already had. We need to make more vaccine and we need to convince people to actually get inoculated. John touched on the fact that there is a slowing pace of vaccinations in the United States. How concerning is that? It is quite concerning. I just read a, a study about an outbreak in a nursing home where most of the residents were protected with vaccines, but um, only about 53% of the healthcare workers in the nursing home here in the U.S. Um, had been fully vaccinated. And unfortunately, one of the residents who had been vaccinated in this can happen, particularly in medically frail individuals, died. So this is a real problem. And then, of course, we're hearing about states pulling back on ordering vaccine, that they are not having the kind of uptake that they had been, had been having. Um, this is something that I think we have to address with much urgency. I think there are some people who are probably just trying to wait and see. I think there are some people who uh, don't feel that they want to get vaccinated, but we need to reach both of those people, both of those groups of people and and convince them that, you know, your time to get vaccinated is as soon as as you're able. And the faster we do this is the faster we get back to normal. What a tough moment to be a leader of this country right now and make this decision, doctor, because there is so much pressure to take some of the supply here and allocate it to the rest of the world where it's needed most right now. How do you make a decision like that when some parts of your country have decided they don't want this vaccine? Sure. Well, it is a tough decision. And, you know, every elected official, their first responsibility is to the people who uh, uh, elected him or her. Um, in this case, though, the United States have 
has more vaccines than we need. Even if um, every single American um, were to get a, va a vaccine, we still have more than we need. And so I think it is important for us to um, consider donating at least to cover some some very high uh, risk groups like uh, healthcare workers that are working across the globe. They show up every day, put their lives on the lines to save people's lives. We should be able to protect them. And the U.S. has enough vaccine to be able to um, to help in those efforts. Doctor, thank you. We have to leave it there. Doctor Jennifer Nusso there, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Senior Scholar. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.